there and welcome to Brain for Business, your podcast for all things brain, behavioral and organizational sciences. It's great to have you with us. As always, to listen back to past episodes, make sure to check out our website, brainforbusiness.ie, and feel free to drop us a note via the website with any comments, feedback, or even questions that you might have. I am delighted to welcome to this week's episode of Brain for Business, Professor Henrik Graeber. Henrik Graeber is the Rudolf and Valeria Marg Chaired Professor of Entrepreneurship at INSEAD, based in Singapore. Henrik's research interest is strategic change in organizations, mostly from a learning perspective, and includes examining how networks of organizations change, how organizations and communities are related, and how innovations are made and spread. Henrik has published over 80 articles in journals, including Administrative Science Quarterly, Academy of Management Journal, Strategic Management Journal, American Journal of Sociology, American Sociological Review, and management science. More recently, in an article published in American Sociological Review with co-authors Hayagriva Rao, Paul Vicinanza, and Echo Yanjao, Henrik examined online conspiracy groups, microbloggers, bots, and coronavirus conspiracy talk on Twitter. And I'm delighted to welcome Henrik to Brain for Business to explore this research further. Henrik, great to be speaking to you. Thank you so much for inviting. Great to be speaking to you. Oh, thank you. So let's start with uh, perhaps a simple question, perhaps a difficult question, but what is a conspiracy theory? So conspiracy theory is about some you know, well-known event. Um, the elements of it is that uh, this event is actually orchestrated by, by some scheming group of people, usually many of them and powerful, um, and they make the event be something other than what the normal news will tell you what it is. So uh, it, it's a story of, of deception, usually, or with evil intent. So there's a story of harm in it as well. Okay, so e- evil intent is is an interesting one. What, in in terms of that, are some common conspiracy theories that people listening might be familiar with? Well, to take a, a relatively harmless in content conspiracy theory there was the, the in the covid the pandemic there was the film your hospital uh, story uh, where the idea was that actually the, the hospitals were pretending to treat uh, the pandemic patients uh, but because there wasn't any pandemic uh, they were really just empty um, and so you're supposed to film those and show that the hospital is actually empty now there are lots of variations of that one uh, depending on who benefited from it and for what purpose. But the general idea here is that uh, you know, we're going to control society, we're going to profit from it, and, and so we need the hospitals to, to um, have this image of being busy with patients when in reality there is nothing going on. When you were describing that there, you termed it in terms of, you know, we're going to control society, we're going to profit from it. If we think about things from a conspiracy theory perspective, who is this we who is supposedly going to, to profit and benefit from all of this? Well, this is part of where they, uh, the conspiracy theories uh, become problematic uh, because, I mean, it's usually there is some political slant or some um, even item of discrimination there. 
And so they're targeted either towards an unnamed uh, global cabal of people or, or they name people uh, even service proxies like uh, um, there would be Soros would be somebody often named and, and so, of course, the subtext there is that uh, there is, you know, it's against the Jewish. Um, uh, it can also be against prominent scientists. Uh, it can be against uh, states, uh, the government in general. Um, th those are, are those unspecified we who create the damage here. I guess in that sense, it's maybe a link to to what has commonly or become commonly referred to, particularly in in the US as the the deep state. This kind of shadow organization that is running and controlling everything, like puppeteers in the background. Is that accurate? That's one version of it. But uh, keep in mind that uh, all of these conspiracy theories, uh, I mean, they generate many different versions, and and often. Who is exactly behind it uh, is, is one of those things that are different depending on who's telling the story. Uh, but yeah, definitely, uh, many of those conspiracy theories were sort of anti-deep state conspiracy theories, often generally anti-science as well, or an anti-news uh, organizations, or at least the, the ones that we that actually generate news that has been checked. <laughs> and I'm guessing you're referring there to some of the um, the, the non-news organizations that call themselves news organizations, uh, particularly in, in in the US. And and it's obviously it's interesting as well your your reference there to Soros and that 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 strong history of anti-Semitism that seems to go through a, a lot of these uh, conspiracy theories. Thinking back over history, though, have conspiracy theories been more prevalent at, at certain times? or more prevalent sometimes rather than others? We don't really know that because conspiracy theories by their nature uh, are a little bit hard to trace. I mean, people understand that when they talk about conspiracy theories, it's it's a somewhat embarrassing and, and not quite legitimate thing to do. So, so they were passed from person to person uh, earlier. The, the new thing that's happening now is People have an online presence, which isn't the same as their regular presence. In fact, you can more or less conceal who you are in real society. And then once that concealment is in place, people can speak freely about embarrassing, illegitimate things like conspiracy theories. So now it's all out in the public. Uh, we can watch it. Um, and we can, we can start noticing that, um, you know, when there are these fears in society, you know, fears for personal health, um, fear for the economy or, or for national security, own security, um, issues like that. Uh, anything that looks like a threat uh, can stimulate a conspiracy theory. Uh, now, does that mean we can go back in history and, and compare? Not really. But it looks like a, a pretty robust pattern. I mean, uh, threats and fears stimulate conspiracy theories. And as you were, were talking there, the, the example came to mind, whether this is a genuine or a proper example or not, of times when there have maybe, maybe been immigrants coming in and there have been maybe you know perceptions that they're causing problems, whether it's to do with disease or to do with whatever. 
that it's them, it's the other. Uh, so that in-group, out-group bias perhaps coming into play and, and impacting on how people see things. There are definitely patterns like that. And, and uh, to take one example from uh, the UK, I mean, during the Brexit uh, referendum, I mean, there were a fair number of conspiracy theories out there and disproportionately on the Brexit side. <laughs> Uh, so a lot of those who uh, were voting for Brexit or intending to vote uh, according to surveys, they thought that the vote was going to be rigged against them. There was also, in, in terms of Brexit, uh, I guess that fear that, or, or that that reasoning perhaps that Brexit was going to stop these you know foreigners swamping the country and that. I remember reading uh, an interesting article by I think it was Carol Cadwallader in the in the Guardian, where she went to visit a small town in Wales and asked why people voted for Brexit, and they said, "Well, to stop all the foreigners coming in." And and she talks about how she looked around her, and there were no foreigners in this small town in Wales. Yet somehow this conspiracy theory had had, had grown into a major issue for people's thinking. It actually has those effects. I mean, uh, people uh, are willing to to invent threats that uh, that are that don't even exist because of other threats that they're thinking about it, it's a funny uh, or actually tragic cycle uh, in, in terms of people's thinking and, and talking how persuasive these can be I'd like to, to maybe step into that question of, of the role conspiracy theories play in in just a moment but before we do that, I, I just want to actually ask, you know, we, we've touched on a number of different conspiracy theories, both in terms of, say, you know, Soros and deep states and Brexit. But have any of these so-called conspiracy theories ever turned out to be true uh, and, and ever been found to be based in some kind of reality? Well, so the, the type of uh, conspiracy theories that we're really interested in when we do our research are, are the ones where Sort of the scale of conspiring and the scale of concealment is so immense that they're actually impossible. I mean, think about the, the film your hospital conspiracy theory. Just how many hospital directors and other people, unnamed powerful people, would need to conspire to make that happen? How many hospital employees would need to either stay quiet or be, be made quiet by, by some nefarious means? Uh, in order for nobody to know about this. Um, it, it just strains any credulity. Uh, and, and there are many conspiracy theories of that kind. Uh, but of course, there are also the smaller ones that we don't really care about. And they've been around you know, since ancient Rome, right? You can read the Roman historians and, and their, uh, their conspiracy theories of why various emperors got killed. And uh, no doubt some of them were true, but those are small-scale conspiracies. If we, we step on then and think about the role that conspiracy theories play, because clearly of the last few years we've had COVID, it's been the big thing that's dominated the, the world, really. What role do these different conspiracy theories play in helping people either cope with these challenging times or, or maybe make sense of these challenging times? 
Paul, I, I often refer to conspiracy theories as a form of reality denial. So you're in a world where reality seems threatening in, in some ways. I mean, just imagine what it feels like. Uh, well, we don't have to imagine. We just went through it. What it felt like, uh, you know, there, there is this COVID virus. It's out there. People are in hospitals. You're being asked to stay home. Um, I mean, it, it's a lot to process. Um, it's, it's a threatening reality. Um, and people might take the step of inventing stories um, or one simple gateway story is that, well, they're actually wrong about it. Um, so the number of their, their miscounting, uh, the number of dead, uh, they are misdiagnosing. Uh, maybe there isn't even a virus at all. It's just made up. Maybe it's all just 5G towers uh, or something like that that makes people temporarily feel sick, or maybe it's just a trick uh, to make people stay home while they're quietly installing 5G towers. I mean, all sorts of stories about how it's something else than the real threat. And, and reality denial, at least in the short term, of course, it, it feels good if, if the reality isn't a great reality to live in. in indeed, indeed. And if, if we then talk to or rather turn to your your research and, and the paper I mentioned earlier on. Has the has the rise of social media like like Twitter and, and the different bots and algorithms that go with it, has that exacerbated conspiracy theories or has it simply made things a bit different? Certainly the speed has gone up tremendously. I think we can be pretty confident of that because somebody can now feel threatened and they can hear about the conspiracy theory or even view it on their screen. And then they can write something or retweet, uh, which is if they're on Twitter. Um, and then they can notice if other people think that that's a good idea because they're also retweeting it. So they can feel popular as a result of what they wrote. And, and so naturally these things add up. I mean, first you're dealing with a threat by doing some reality denial and then discover that the reality denial is actually a popular thing. So you you become a little bit of a celebrity. Um, and, and strangely enough, what we observed happening was that the people who, whose conspiracy theories became popular they started not only repeating them, but they created new ones, different from the ones that made them popular, inconsistent with the ones that made them popular. And so this thing just kept spinning. So did you say they made up new conspiracy theories that were inconsistent or consistent with, with what they had made up with earlier? Both. Okay. Consistent ones and inconsistent ones. And it, it's, it's a remarkable thing to see. But uh, yes, they made up not just inconsistent ones, but contradictory ones. And that process that, that, that people went through, I guess on a certain level, it, you could argue that people were getting a bit of a, a, a buzz from the fact that their tweet got 
so many reposts or retweets and so many likes and so on. But was it just that kind of that that rush and that that sort of feeling of of, of popularity that people were getting? Or, or were there other things going on that that led to people getting into this kind of cycle and, and spiraling, as you put it? I mean, the first step, uh, you can think of it as a step-by-step process. I mean, the first step for a lot of them is to, uh, to just start talking about one of those borderline plausible conspiracy theories um, that doesn't have a... a a cabal of, of evil people. Maybe it's just that uh, you know the governments all over the world are misdiagnosing, they're overcounting. Now, why they would do that is a mystery, but at least that's uh, you know the, the it's not quite as strange as uh, rigging all the hospitals to pretend to be busy. <laughs> now that hospital story is the next step because that one is more extreme. And, and actually manufacturing a COVID virus and using it to control people in some way, which is another version of them. Uh, so it's okay that people get sick, but at least we get to control them. Uh, it's what the evildoers are thinking in this one. Uh, that's yet another of the extreme ones. And, and so it's step by step going deeper and deeper into, into the extreme conspiracy theories. And not everybody will do that, but some people will. I mentioned a moment ago the role of um, you know bots and, and algorithms. So it, it's not just a person like you or me reading someone's tweet or post on social media and liking it and sharing it, but but these automated processes have they served to to, to turbocharge and, uh, and 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 again exacerbate or make things worse? They definitely amplify things because they pick up. Uh, conspiracy theories that are popular and then they keep you know pumping away at them uh, supporting them in various ways uh, interestingly we've found that uh, those bots were a little less imaginative than the actual humans um, because they I mean they have human operators which is the reason I suppose uh, so, so they're good at picking up things that gets popular and then amplifying that popularity, but they were less inventive in, in creating uh, new conspiracy theories. That was mostly done by the, the human uh, actors. Okay, I, I, interesting. And, and I guess that maybe comes down to who who, who were the, the, the people behind the bots and, and what they they were trying to, uh, trying to do. One of the things you also touched on in, uh, in in your research, and we've sort of hinted at it a little bit, is the role that conspiracy theories can play in helping people make sense of the world. C- can you tell us a little bit about those sense-making processes? I guess, first of all, what are sense-making process, processes, but then also how it played out in terms of particularly the COVID conspiracy so the normal sense making is that we're, you know, we're looking at a situation, we're looking at some events, and we're trying to interpret it, find out what's what's going on. I mean, that's sort of normal, neutral um, sense making. But then you have the motivated version of it, uh, which means that, you know, there are certain things you want to accomplish, and and of course, if, if the situation you're looking at is is threatening, uh, the motivation could be to 
reduce the threat in, in some way. And, and so that means that the sense-making is going to take off in, in particular directions, um, which could be the direction of, um, of a conspiracy theory. Uh, and this motivated reasoning actually explains a lot. Um, obviously, it would lead to conspiracy theories such as you know, the, the COVID pandemic is a hoax and, and the hospitals aren't doing anything. Uh, they're just pretending, you know, that reduces the threat to nothing because it's just a hoax. Uh, but even some of the puzzling conspiracy theories, I mean, us as regular decision makers trying to make sense of the sense making of conspiracy theorists, we have to think carefully about it because, you know, their thinking is a little different often. Um, if you look at the reality of COVID, I mean, it, it's a, it's a virus. It's, you know, the lowest form of, of being on earth, which is a tiny thing that's mindlessly trying to use us, you know, use us as prey, eat us basically. Uh, now that's a pretty threatening reality. And, and then to construct a conspiracy theory of, of how some powerful human group has actually created it and sent it out there, it sounds odd and it sounds equally threatening, but it actually makes the adversary a human being. So that's a little bit easier to deal with than, than this itty-bitty thing with no mind that's just mechanically making people ill and, and killing many of them. Because I guess the reality is that if the enemy, for want of a better term, is another human being, I can do something about it. I can talk to you on the phone. I can go and find where you are, whatever. But if it's an invisible virus that you know may or may not exist, supposedly, then it's very hard for me to actually understand and, and to engage with that in a, in a, in a meaningful way. Exactly. The, the virus that has been sort of engineered to force you to do various things, such as, you know, taking a vaccine that will control your body in some way, that's yet another conspiracy theory, um, is, is less threatening than just a regular biological thing. Yeah, and I guess that that sort of falls or leads into the the, the whole Pizzagate conspiracy, which I know you mentioned as well in, in your paper. And for anyone who who doesn't remember Pizzagate, it was this idea that there was a a basement underneath a, a pizza store, I think, in Washington D.C., where Democrats were torturing children and and so on, um, run by pedophile rings and drinking blood. So it was all all very strange. And someone turned up with a with a, uh, a machine gun ready to, to sort things out and realized it wasn't true at all. And, and we can only imagine how disappointed this person who showed up uh, must have been <laughs> facing reality. But uh, yes, I mean, uh, exactly. When things are personalized, um, somehow in the conspiracy theory mind, um, they're actually less uh, threatening. You mentioned earlier on this idea of things sort of spinning and, and, and I guess, you know, the... I've heard the, the term, you know, people sort of going down the rabbit hole of, of, of conspiracy theories. A, a while back on the, the Brain for Business podcast, we spoke to uh, Robert Arell, who was a, um, a Swedish neo-Nazi in his early days and then has come through the other side and now works in, in de-radicalization. 
would you see that as as a similar kind of process that you know for some people it might lead to that you know neo-nazi avenue for others it might lead to being trapped in a, in a world of, of online conspiracy theories it's it's certainly hard to tell where it will end because um the conspiracy theories uh they they do i mean they are a way of looking at some portion of the rest of the world as a herd, right? As, as some sort of enemy of you. But that also means that the, the believers in that type of conspiracy theory might herd together in one way or the other. Uh, it's hard to tell whether that will happen or not, because the, the type of conspiracy theories we, we were looking at uh, were oriented towards the, the pandemic. And we noticed a lot of, of, of speed in, in how the conspiracy theories changed over time, uh, even in individual uh, users of Twitter. Um, and, and so it, it seemed more like a defensive uh, mechanism than, than something that would naturally turn into an attack. But it's hard to tell. I mean, th these things... For sure, uh, some of the conspiracy theories would be telling people to not stay at home, not put on masks, not take vaccines, and not give vaccines to their children. And that's obviously harmful. Uh, now, will they also lead to other types of harm in, in the forms of violence? Well, there was some evidence of you know, uh, people worsening prior to the 5G towers, and there were some attacks against uh, people who were uh, working for the telecoms. And, and so there was some of that. I, I guess that, that also prompts a question. Are, are some people more susceptible to conspiracy theories than others? I guess in terms of your research, obviously you were looking at Twitter, so it, it was biased towards people who were online and, and on Twitter in particular, but in general, uh, are some people more susceptible? We don't really know that. Uh, we what, what we're fairly confident of, about is that uh, the situation is very controlling. Um, there, there are these pressures like the threat, then there are these temptations like the plausible um, conspiracy theories, and then there's the step-by-step -step process. I mean, it, it really seems that people are lured into it. Uh, and maybe we need to pay more attention to how they're lured into it than by how they are, are different from each other. Now, as, as educators, we would love to think that, you know, education can be a vaccine. <laughs> you know, it, it can actually help people think more critically about information they receive. That would be nice. Does your research, or, or at least your your own perspective, suggest that we should simply accept that uh, conspiracy theories exist, or, or should we should we maybe approach them differently and, and maybe try and inoculate, if I can use that term, people uh, against them? We can't accept them because they can be so harmful. I mean, conspiracy theories of various kinds, not just the, the COVID one, um, actually make people not take vaccinations, give vaccinations. I mean, some conspiracy theories have been connected to violence. Uh, and, and these are just the ones we've seen so far. Uh, what about future conspiracy theories? Um, 
I think the way to look at them is, is to really view them as as unknown enemy with unknown tactic that's going to come. Uh, because conspiracy theories are coming, and we think they they are more frequent when there is some sort of societal threat or societal fear. Uh, so how do you deal with that? Uh, you prepare the ground, right? Um, and preparing the ground, um, well, education and understanding society enough that you can tell the difference between plausible and implausible claim uh, would be helpful. I mean, so there is a conspiracy theory that hospitals all over the United States are pretending to treat COVID patients. How many hospitals is that? How many workers do they have? What's the likelihood that everybody would keep quiet? Seems pretty small, doesn't it? Oh, and then you're looking at a picture of a hospital room that's pretty empty. Well, do you know when that was taken? And Oh, and if it was taken now, maybe it was the maternity ward. I mean, hospitals generally don't put COVID patients in maternity wards. You know, think of things that make sense versus things that don't make sense. That's one of the functions of, of education. Um, and maybe also teach a little bit more skepticism towards things that are found on, on the web, because all of these web uh, apps are quite important in spreading things quickly. Um, and then people should know. I mean, a lot of my friends, they have you know, web postings of various kinds with their portrait on it. The, the portrait is typically uh, a fair amount younger than they are, easily by a decade or so. Uh, we all know that. And, and the, the children, the, the young people have friends on Instagram. They're, they're not as perfect as they are on the Instagram images, and they know that. And, and so how can you know all of that? And yet you believe that conspiracy theories that pop up somewhere are true. There has to be a lot of motivated reasoning behind it. So maybe we can do, yeah, a bit of inoculation, as you say. Talking of uh, things on the internet, if people wanted to find out more about your research, is there anywhere in particular they can go? Well, so this particular paper was in the American Sociological Review, as you said. Um, we are, uh, we do have a book contract, but that will come out more than a year from now. We're going to write more about conspiracy theories. Um, I actually write a, a blog about uh, research, uh, most of it other people's research, because I, I generally like research. <laughs> um, it, the blog is called uh, Organizational Musings. And uh, I can also be found on uh, the new uh, social media uh, platform, Post.News, in addition to Twitter. Um, I'm still there. Okay, that sounds great. Well, I'll make sure I put some links in the in the show notes to uh, to, to each of those and and also to the article. Professor Henrik Greve of INSEAD, thank you very much for your time. It's been great speaking to you. Thank you so much. Uh, wonderful questions. I enjoyed our conversation. Mm-hmm.